we can cry out hallelujah and sing because of your great love for us. And now, Spirit of God, as we turn our attention to the word, we pray that you would guide us. We need your help to understand it. And so enlighten us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. When does it become uncomfortable for you to share your faith? At what point does it become challenging or hard for you to take what God has granted you in Christ and share it with someone else? Is it uncomfortable to share your faith when you're talking to neighbors and they tell you that one of them is diagnosed with terminal cancer? And they're not believers and you've been wanting to share the gospel with them and now there's terminal cancer involved. Now there's this suffering involved and you're not sure how to engage them in the conversation of a good God who loves them in spite of disease and suffering? Is it uncomfortable when you're at work and at times the policies at work may not be totally congruent with your Christian faith and the morals that you believe God's called you to? What happens when you're there and you're asked to do something that you feel would be searing your conscience? Are you able in that moment to talk to your boss about what it looks like that you are a follower of Christ and because of that there's certain things you will and won't do, certain things that you're comfortable or not comfortable with? What if you're a student and it's a paper you're writing and you know that what you're being asked to write is actually not aligned with the gospel? Are you able to write that paper and as you write that paper also explain what you believe and why you believe it? At, at what point... Is it for you that whatever opposition or difficulty you might face would cause you to kind of cringe in sharing your faith, would just kind of either, cause you to either stutter or just stop entirely? The apostles faced incredible opposition in the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles, we're on Acts 5, beginning at verse 17, Acts 5, 17. And as they face this opposition, we're going to see how they respond. Acts 5, verse 17, the word of God says this, Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles. They put them in the public jail. And during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, the angel said. Tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they, that's the apostles, entered the temple courts as they had been told, and they began to teach all the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin. That's the full assembly of the elders of Israel. And they sent to the jail for the apostles, but on arriving to the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and they reported, we found the jail securely locked. The guards were standing at the doors. When we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the guard, uh, captain of the temple guard, and the chief priest were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts, teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared the people would stone them. Ananias and Sapphira have been judged by God. God's people wondered 
if his blessing would still rest upon them, if they would still be a people where God would be blessing them, would be walking with them. The Lord shows through mighty acts and deeds that he is still indeed with them. You can see that moving into the next portion of Genesis, that I, of, of Acts, right, that I preached through last Sunday. And God's blessing is resting upon the apostles at that time. Miracles, they're teaching in Solomon's colonnade. People are coming to faith in Christ. Others are saying, I want nothing to do with this. They revered them, they respected them, but they're like, wow, this is something I don't want anything to do with. It's radical. It's, it's serious. I mean, Ananias and Sapphira were killed because of a misstep. I mean, that's what they would think. We know they grievously sinned against the holy God. And what happens is, is their height of popularity goes up. As people, again, are believing in Jesus, are turning from sin and trusting in him, as the end of kind of verse 16 says. And so the high priest and all of his associates are now jealous. They're members of the party of the Sadducees. The Sadducees would claim their roots to the high priest Zodak, who was the high priest at the time of King Solomon. They weren't legalistic like the Pharisees. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They were more politically engaged. And they, at this time, they kind of end, kind of when the temple's gone in 70 AD, that's kind of the end of the time of the, of the Sadducees that you see anywhere in, in history. Um, but up until this time, they're still fairly popular. They have popular, popularity among the Sanhedrin. And it's among, from the Sadducees that the high priest is ruling. And so they're filled with great jealousy because everyone's trying to follow these apostles. Unlike the Pharisees, who likely aren't as jealous and more concerned about the, the actual logistics of the law, and believing that Jesus did not fulfill the law or trying to teach against that, the Sadducees are more concerned about their political persuasion. The Sadducees are more concerned about their popularity. And so they arrest the apostles, and they put them in jail. And during the night, an angel breaks them out. Bible doesn't tell us how. Just the Lord opens the doors, must have shut them again because they find the door shut the next morning brings them out and says, hey, in the morning, go back into the temple courts, stand there, and proclaim the good news about this life that you found. So the next morning, the Sanhedrin arrives, and they arrive, all the elders of Israel together, to make judgment on the apostles, to make some determination about what they're saying and what's going on, and they go to get them out of jail. And they send people to go get them out of jail. They don't know that the apostles are in the temple courts preaching. They don't know that they're back in Solomon's colonnade declaring the gospel. They don't know that this has happened. And so there they are having this conversation. They send them, the people they send come back with reports saying, hey, uh, they're not there. The doors were locked. The guards were there. Everything was intact. The apostles were gone. And now they're wondering, well, what happened? What occurred? Now, they don't have to wonder long, because then someone comes along and says, hey, you don't have to look any further for them. They didn't flee. They're back in Solomon's colonnade declaring the gospel again. They're back the same place they were arrested the first time, to be arrested again. And this time, because, large, large, lock, uh, because likely a large crowd has gathered with them, knowing that they are in prison and now that they're released, What's occurred at this time is they're like, hey, don't use any force. 
Just bring them in. Why? Because they feared that people would actually stone them. They feared that people would actually stone them. Verse 27, so the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on the cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. The apostles are brought before the Sanhedrin. This is the entire ruling council of Jerusalem. Pharisees, Sadducees, elders, the leaders of Israel gather to pronounce judgment. They're brought before the high priest. The high priest says, stop. We, we told you to stop doing this. Now note, he won't even name the name of Jesus. There becomes this superstition. In fact, strict, devout Jews today still won't name his name. They will not do it. We gave you orders not to preach or teach in his name. And you're making it look like his blood's on our hands. I mean, the apostle could have said, uh, his blood is on your hands. You're the one who had him killed. You're the ones who had him executed. You're the ones who Pilate said, man, I don't see anything wrong with this man. I can't find anything wrong with him. Let him go. In fact, the only thing they could accuse Jesus of was what? There was only one thing they could find to, to actually charge him with. What was it? Blasphemy. Blasphemy. That you, a mere man, claimed to be God because he was God come down. It's the only charge they had against him was blasphemy. The only sin they could find against him, the only crime they could find was blasphemy. And now you're filling Jerusalem with this teaching, making us guilty of his blood. I want you to note here we must obey God rather than human beings. I have probably heard that quoted more in the last two years through the pandemic than I have in all of my ministry combined. And it is so misquoted. It's quoted over masks, social distancing. Like, that's in the text. We must obey God rather than human beings. I want you to note what the apostles say. This is critical. God, our ancestors, raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging on a cross. They mentioned the crucifixion of Jesus. We can't remain silent. Jesus died for us. We can't remain silent. Jesus rose for us. We can't remain silent. God has exalted him. Ascension. So you have here the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension. God exalted him. He is the prince and savior. The savior who does what? Who brings repentance and forgiveness of sin. Salvation declared here. We can't remain silent. He is the one who grants salvation. So we are his witnesses and God's spirit is in us and to all who obey him. 
That's when you can cry out, we obey God, rather than men. If you're going to pull a religious card out, and you're going to use it around government, and you're going to use this one, it's around the declaration of the gospel. It's around declaring who Jesus is and what he's done. It's around declaring his crucifixion, his resurrection. It's around declaring his ascension, the need for repentance and forgiveness of sin. It's around your witness. I was in a conversation with a couple of men probably about six months ago through the pandemic where they actually quoted this at me. Talking through the protocols, talking about what they thought, anti-mask, anti-vax. Listen, I am not saying you can't have your opinion on this stuff, but you can't quote this verse to me on it. This is not the verse. This is not the verse. Not at all. This verse is found in the context of God's people declaring his gospel. So I said to them, guys, how many people have you declared the gospel to over the pandemic? Who have you led to faith in Christ? Who's been baptized because of your witness? And they said, what? They said, just, just tell me. Tell me the names of the people that you've been declaring the gospel to. Tell me the names of the people. If you're saying you need to obey God rather than men, and you're worried about the church not being able to do what God has called the church to do, tell me how you've been doing what God's called the church to do. Tell me how you've been his witnesses. Explain it to me. Just tell me. Tell me who. And they couldn't. They couldn't. No one. You see, this text of obeying God rather than men is found in the context of the witness of who Jesus is to the world and our need for salvation. It's found in the context of God's grace being poured out on humanity because our sin had separated us from him and God's grace in Jesus allows us to be brought back. Is that not good news? This is found in the context that Jesus is the hope for the world. Do you believe that? Jesus is the only hope for your neighbor who's struggling with cancer. Jesus is the only hope for your friend who's lost their job. Jesus is the only hope for the indigenous of our land. Jesus is the only hope for the LGBTQ plus community. Jesus is the only hope for who I am and what I need. Jesus is the only hope for our marriages. Jesus is the only hope for our children. Jesus is the only hope for our universities. Jesus is the only hope for our professors. Jesus is the only hope for the world. It's only him. And it's only in his name that we declare that hope. The hope that there is resurrection. The hope that there is life. The hope that we can be forgiven. The hope that God loves us. Is that not good news? That's what this is about. This passage in this context is about the apostles saying, if it's about God and his law, his way, his command for the world and its, we're on God's side. And when it comes to God's side, it's about crucifixion. It's about resurrection. It's about ascension. It's about witness. It's about repentance and forgiveness. What if today everyone walking out of James North who's either listening live stream or here Said, that's my, that's my role. I, I'm to be his witness. I'm about to pray through what it means that I'm his witness. 
that I'm witness of the fact that God in the person of Christ died for me. I'm witness of the fact that God in the person of Christ, God the Son, rose for me. I'm witness of the fact that the person of Christ, God the Son, has ascended, that he offers forgiveness, that he grants repentance, and that the Holy Spirit is in me, that God's Spirit guides me. Well, verse 33, when they heard this, they were furious. They wanted to put them to death. But then a Pharisee named Gamaliel, teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin. He ordered that the men be put outside for a while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, men of Israel. Consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. Some time ago, Thaddeus, or Thaddeus appeared, claiming he was somebody, and about 400 men rallied around him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt, and he too was killed. His followers were scattered. He appeals to some human reason and say, hey, there were a couple of guys that were raised up in revolt. Now, some people contest, is Luke accurate here? Josephus will name a man named uh, Thetis, and he'll name him about 44 AD, which is, of course, after this speech would have taken place years after. But Thetis was a common name. 400 people following him is not a large following. It's likely there were lots of them. In fact, you can read in the account of Josephus at some point he says there were thousands of these revolts. He names a few. He also names one of, of, of a Judas. A Galilean could be the same one. We don't know. And so in the, in the antiquities of Josephus, if you read through that, you can see some of these people named. And some people will say, well, Luke has his history all wrong because Josephus names someone later on. I'm like, no, probably just a different guy, different following. Like 400 people following you is not a big following, not a big revolt. That's why it squashed and died. And there were lots of them. There were literally thousands of them in those days. Crucifixion was fairly common. Lots of insurrectionists died by way of crucifixion. I mean, we think of it as uncommon because we don't see it, but it was a fairly common practice. He goes on and he says, Therefore, in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. If their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. And that's, that's it. Now, that's only human wisdom. I mean, had he been a godly man, he would have said, oh, by the way, maybe we should look into it. Maybe we should research the Old Testament and the claims about messianic promises. Maybe we should dive in a bit. He doesn't say that. He just says, if it's of God, he won't stop it. If it's not, it'll just die off. And they agree, and they let them go. So verse 40, his speech persuades them. They called the apostles in. They had them flogged. So that's 39 lashes minus one, 40 lashes, sorry, minus one. They ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. So they're flogged, right? So with their backs all lacerated. And again, no, we don't know how many of the apostles. It's likely not all of them. It could be. Uh, it just says the apostles. We don't know how many of them were brought in. But they're flogged. They're brought out, and they're told not to speak in the name of Jesus, what do you do if you're told not to speak in the name of Jesus? What are you told if there's certain groups you can't any longer speak the name of Jesus to? That you have to respect their spirituality. I'm not saying you shouldn't be respectful in conversation. Of course you should be. In fact, 
I think today, in today's day and age, part of the best way to evangelize in your conversation with people is to ask as many questions as you can, to learn as much about them as you can, to understand what they believe as much as you can. Many of you will remember a few years ago, we had some uh, struggles at soccer where some of the Muslim families didn't want their kids participating in our devotional anymore. And so I came up with this idea and said, you know, what if instead of us having them sit with all the kids, I'll have all the Muslim kids come over and sit with me. Their parents are welcome to come. I did this for a while, willing to do this again next summer if we run soccer again. And, uh, and let's have all the Muslim kids try to convert me to the Muslim faith. And the parents thought this was a great idea. So all the Muslim kids would come around and they would tell me what they would believe. And I would say, oh, you believe that. I didn't know you believe that. Explain a little more about what you believe. They'd tell me what they believe and I'd say, I don't believe that. And they'd say, what do you believe? And I'd tell them what I believe and quote a Bible verse. And so it's about four weeks in and one of the parents calls me aside and says, could we talk for a minute? I'm like, yeah. He says, this is very, very sneaky. <laughs> I said, what is? He said, uh, he said, he said, your devotionals were very simple. And now your conversion of our kids is very profound, he said. Because before they were just listening to these Bible stories. Now you're doing this defense of your, of, your, of your belief system in front of our kids and families. We all sat there looking at each other last week and said, why did we ever agree to this? I said, but you did. Right? I said, you're happy. You can bring the questions before me. But one of the best ways to learn about what someone believes is to listen respectfully, to hear them out, but unashamedly to declare what we believe in Jesus Christ. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the creator of all things. He was before all things. All things exist for him. They're sustained by him. He is after all things. He is eternal. Part of the triune God. He is God the Son. So they say that you're not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go after being flogged. I'm not saying you don't have the right to fight for your civil liberties. I think you've heard me say that enough through this pandemic. Of course you do. I've done it. There are times through the pandemic where I felt like there are things that, protocols that have come out, things that have been out there that I don't think are fair, that I don't think are right, that I don't agree with, and we have mechanisms and ways of dealing with that. We can elect people in and out of office. We can write letters. We can protest. There's a number of ways that we have means and mechanisms within our culture in order to do that. But don't mix your civil liberties and your religious liberties. I mean, we have religious liberties. And there are some that are granted to us that I appreciate. I, I appreciate that pastors get a housing allowance, but if that was taken away, I'm not fighting for it. I appreciate that churches don't pay taxes. But I don't feel like I'm being persecuted if I start to pay taxes. I don't feel like that's a hindrance to the declaration of the gospel. In any way. And all of a sudden, what we do is we confuse some of our religious liberties and some of our civil liberties with the obligations of the gospel itself. And the obligations of the gospel are to declare who Christ is to this world. The obligations of the gospel are to repent of sin and follow him. The obligations of the gospel are to walk in the Spirit for the rest of our life. 
as we declare who Christ is to the world around us. And so I want you to know what they did. It's really simple. It's just verse 41 and 42. So the apostles left the Sanhedrin, and they rejoiced because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for his name. So day after day in the temple courts, and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Did you hear what they did? The apostles left the Sanhedrin. They left. Don't ever speak in the name of Jesus again. Day after day. Did you hear how often they did it? Every day. Day after day. In the temple courts, back in public, the place where they were arrested. And from house to house. This either means that they went from house to house, or it can mean that as God saved one house, that house shared with the homes around it. That they now saw themselves as witnesses to the people around them, and they shared the gospel with those around them. And they kept proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. You see, we've become so concerned with our freedom during COVID that we've missed this incredible opportunity to declare the hope we have in Christ with the world around us. Our anchor is not in this culture. We are aliens and strangers, amen? We don't belong here. One day we'll be home. I've shared this before, but I remember an ambassador was coming in from another country uh, to Canada, to, to, sorry, to America, and as their plane landed, uh, there were some missionaries. He was in first class with a group of people further on in the plane. And when they got off the plane, the ambassador got off the plane, massive fanfare, welcome, reporters, everyone. And this missionary couple, couple I think, had spent 37 years overseas. And uh, when they got off the plane, there was no one there to welcome them. There was going to be a party at some point, but there was no one. And, and, and his husband said to his wife, I'm so sorry there's no one here to welcome us home. And she smiled at him and said, honey, we're not home. We're not home. We're not home. Because this is not our home. We're just passing through. And so the people, the apostles saw that God had granted them this privilege to take what he had done in them and to declare it to the world. And that's what they did. And that's what we get to do, this amazing chance of privilege we get to do. And so I think of George Verwer, 14 years of age, hears the gospel, 17 years of age, gives his life to Christ. 18 years of age, what's he doing in his summers? A year after he's come to faith in Christ, he and a buddy are smuggling gospels of John into Mexico from the States distributing hundreds and hundreds of copies of Gospels of John on their summer break as students for the sake of the gospel at 18 years of age. If you ask them why he did it in his 80s now, George, why? I mean, I've asked him this, why? He said, God saved me. And all I could do in appreciation for what God has done was go to a place where they hadn't heard and declared the gospel to them. I think of Jay, this is now 22 years ago likely, something in that range, 18 years old again. He goes to church for the first time, this unusually happens, doesn't happen very often. On his first occasion at church, God saves him. Captain of his football team, Grimsby area. 
God grabs a hold of his life, saves him. He goes to the pastor, asks the pastor if there's people in the church that can be discipling him. He begins to grow in his faith eight days later, a week Monday after he came to faith in Christ on that Sunday. He gathers all of his high school football buddies at his house to share what God has done in their lives. Two of them at that meeting come to faith in Christ, and he begins to disciple them. Not long after that, and I've met them both, his parents, both come to faith in Christ. He's now serving God full-time overseas in Asia. Why? Because he was so profoundly changed by what God had done in his life to realize, I can't hold on to this. What I found, I've got to share. I mean, I've met him a few times. I remember at one time him saying to me, you know, Dwayne, I thought everybody was going to accept Christ the way I did. I, I didn't expect the reception I got. I didn't expect some people were going to be upset. Some people were going to be angry. Some people were like, what are you talking about, man? We party hard. Like, that's over, guys. Like, let's do Bible study. Like, yeah, you do Bible study, man. He said, I wasn't expecting all of that. And yet I know what God's purpose in my life for me now is to declare Christ to the world, to let them know who he is. I think of Dawa in Nigeria. I read an account of this from a source I trust. He was saved at a, in his teen years, late teen years. God during Ramadan granted him some visions and the opportunity to hear the gospel preached. He came to faith in Christ. Two days after he came to faith in Christ, his cousin took his Bible and burned it. Three days after he came to faith in Christ, 20 men surrounded him, bound him, and began to cut him and torturing him, calling him to recant his faith or he would be killed. This is Nigeria, Muslims. He wouldn't recant his faith. As he was being tortured for his faith, a police cruiser came by. The crowd dispersed. The two officers got out. The one began to chase some of the men. The other that was there went to talk to this young man, Dawa. Dawa says in his account of this story, he says, as this officer was talking to me, he asked me why I was being beaten, why I was being attacked. I feared for my life, but I told him, I have given my life to Christ three days ago, and I will not recant what I've given to him. He is my savior. The officer smiled and said, Jesus has saved me too. And gave him money and said, flee the country so that you can be safe. Dawa fled the country, found a place to learn and to grow, went back in 2015, and at the time of this story, when this was written, had led 800 Muslims to faith in Christ in that area of Nigeria. And when he was asked why he went back, he said, I have a hope, a hope that they cannot take, even if they take my life, and I long for brothers of mine to know this hope I have and become brothers in Christ. So I, Paul could say the apostle, when he's in jail in the book of Philippians, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So what do you fear? I know for some of us, conversation is awkward and difficult. Some of us are much more introverted. I understand that fully. My wife is, Amy and I are as equally opposite as you can be in many respects. She's exceptionally introverted. I am, I am not remotely introverted. 
in any way. My kids sometimes will say to me, if Amy's taking them shopping, they'll say, how long? Because it could be a while. If I'm taking them shopping, they'll say, Dad, we know you'll be quick unless you talk to people. And I say, well, I won't talk to people unless I know someone. They say, Dad, you talk to strangers, like complete strangers. Um, and, so, and so I realize that there's differences in, the, in that in our, in our personalities. But I can tell you this, as a husband of an introvert, my wife loves sharing her faith. She prays for opportunities faithfully to share her faith to take what God has given her and allow her the opportunity to do that with others, with our neighbors, with her family, with her mom and sister, with others around us, my sister. My, my wife is amazing at doing that in her own way because all of us have conversation. It's just having God's spirit who's in you. You know he's in you, right? Right? You know, he's in you. Allowing him to speak through you in a way that the people around you hear the power of God spoken through you. That Jesus Christ indeed came, lived, died for our sin, was raised three days later, ascended to the right hand of the Father, is King of kings and Lord of lords, granting to anyone who comes to him in repentance forgiveness of sin so that then we can be his witnesses too. Is that not good news? Both in the public square, the temple court, and door to door. Not necessarily meaning that we need to start a door to door ministry. I don't always think that's the best way to do it. But meaning that you have a door and your neighbors have doors. And you think about the neighbors just around you in an apartment complex in a neighborhood, and say, what does it mean that these people are beside me? You know, the greatest single purchase you will ever make in your life, if you make it, is your house. And the number one thing you should put at the top of your list when you're buying a house is this, or renting an apartment, doesn't matter which it is, to be honest. Number one thing, is this the place where God's calling me to minister. It's not about number of rooms. It's not about size of garage. It's not about space around it. The number one thing is this is God's ministry center. Everything falls under that. Everything falls under that. Size of garage, space, things you need. That doesn't mean there aren't some practical things you need. It's just to say that the number one thing is witness. To the glory of God. That's why the apostles could say when they came to them, Kevin, you guys can come up. The apostle could say when they came to them, listen, we must obey God rather than men. For God of our ancestors, the God of our ancestors, he's raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging on a cross, and God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things so that the Holy Spirit whom God has given and so sorry is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So I ask you this as we close. Who has God placed in your life for you to be witness to? 
Who has God placed in your life for you to be witness to? Is it a family member? Is it a neighbor? Is it a friend? Is it a colleague at work? Is it someone at school? And I know we live in a day where being Christian can be seen as anti-intellectual. I know we live in a day where people will come at us and struggle and even say that the, the Bible is unethical. Our views are immoral. But he is the author of life, who has created all things, who knows how we're to live, who though we have sinned against him, grants us a way of freedom and salvation in his son, our savior Jesus, that we get to proclaim because God is good. So as we start to sing, would you just take a moment and say, God, help me to be that witness. God, here's the barriers I face. Here's the struggles I have. God, help me to be that witness. And then would you ask God just to bring to mind one or two people that you can be that witness to?